All right, we're going to teach a little bit tonight and talk. Um, talk a little bit out of my heart. I always want, also want to revisit um, uh, a couple of things that we haven't talked about in a long while, but are relevant to where we are, and I think we have to keep reminding ourselves <coughs> of some of these issues. So um, I really want to talk to you a little bit tonight about what, what God is, is doing with us. Um, here as a people, and I know some of you maybe are not particularly part of this house, but you want to know what God's doing with us, so you know what, you've allowed yourself to get near. Um, and um, in doing that, I need to refer to a couple of things that, that I think will help us to understand um, this process. And um, I, when I was kind of thinking because I have to put a little title always in, in my technology so I know what it is I'm looking for. Um, and so I wrote down today so I could find this rabble or rubble. Um, are we rabble or are we rubble? Now that needs some explanation which I, I will take the time to, to go on and talk to you about. But let me just tell you what the dictionary definition of rabble is. It's a, a disorderly crowd, a mob. So really, people with no real direction, people who are just following the crowd, but often with, often with violent intent. I have never ceased to be amazed about the, um, the submerged violence that is in people that emerges when you just don't give people what they want or say what you'd like them to say or treat them how they'd like to be treated. Um, you know, and we we are in our very nature, uh, we are mob-like in um, how we deal with things. Now, um, we we've tried to redress that balance here by by booking the trend in in our willingness to um, nail our colours to the mast on some thoughts and beliefs that that don't always toe the conventional line. <coughs> of what let's loosely call it evangelicalism <coughs> um, in our desire to know God better, to, to sift out of our own understanding images that have been created uh, by the lens through which we viewed God rather than by God himself. Um, lenses are funny things. We are, we're exposed to them all the time now. <clears throat> and um, how I see you today depends on the lenses here. If I didn't have these lenses on, I would be describing these faceless people <clears throat> who, are, who are fuzzy people, who, who look almost like fuzzy felt creatures, and I would be accurate in my decision, in my, in my declaration of what it was that I saw, um, but you see, the lens changes everything. And uh, sometimes lenses make us see things clearly, sometimes lenses <coughs> distort things. And we, we have all been um, equipped with a number of lenses um, by our background, our upbringing. I have to be careful in my interactions with the world at large that the lens of my Christian upbringing does not create um, uh, an exclusive separatism in me that manifests in a defensive anger that's always trying to show the other person is wrong and I'm right. 
Um, so I'm, I'm always cautious of that, and I'm very thankful for all I've learned, but I am aware I've been given a lens in the same way that people who, for example, are very anti-church, very anti-God, um, very anti the Bible, and very vocally so, if you look back, we're normally given a lens from childhood that says, oh, all this Christianity stuff is rubbish, there is no God, it's a delusion, etc. So if you were raised in that household, you would be as committed to that gospel... Uh, as I am to my gospel, however, would grow up with the sense that you somehow by your own choice and decision, because you are so bright and intelligent and understanding, came to that conclusion about there not being a God. In the same way that I can think I came to the conclusion that there is a God because I'm so bright and intelligent and clever, when actually a lot of it was the lens. I'm thankful for being raised in, in, in uh, the home I was raised in and for the heritage that I I was given, I, I hold it very precious and I'm extremely thankful. But there are other things I've had to learn. So whether you sit on the atheist side of the fence or the Christian side of the fence, we all need a little tolerance of each other to realize we didn't necessarily come to that view on our own. Now I believe that um, as we, within those lens frameworks, begin to recognize we were given a lens, it gives us the opportunity to evaluate and assess um, truth within the truth that we think we know. So I, I, I've been the first to admit to you that um, the God I know now is the same God that I knew as a child, but he doesn't look the same and he doesn't feel the same because I've come to see him in a very different way as I have not let certain lenses dictate to me truths that I needed to address and face. And so my issue is not that there are not specific truths and solid truths that we must adhere to, but we must be careful that we haven't decided those are solid truths just because we were told they were solid truths, right? Just because we were told there is a God or just because we were told there is no God, we must not be arrogant as to stick to that. So that's what the Bible calls the journey of faith. And the journey of faith is actually not a journey of protecting something, it's a journey of discovering something, coming into something. And, um, you know, my classic example, which, which you've heard me use before, is um, the lens of the, the uh, Jewish people at the time when Jesus was born, was that they knew God so well that if God turned up, they would recognize him. That they knew that Messiah was coming and that when Messiah came, who they prophesied about to deliver them, they would welcome Messiah. Well, God turned up and Messiah came. And the people who, from their lens of history, had decided certain things, when God turned up in, in the form of Jesus, he didn't look like the thing he should look. He didn't sound like the thing he should sound. He didn't talk like the thing he should talk. He didn't look like the thing he should look. He didn't hang around with the kind of people they thought he should hang around with. Now, their response to that crisis of challenge was to crucify Jesus. Okay? Because always remember this, the Romans really didn't crucify Jesus. They were the ones who physically put nails in his hands and feet physically hoisted him on the cross and, you know, physically whipped him. But if it had been left to the Romans, the Roman governor said, I can't find nothing wrong with this guy. He seems, actually seems a great guy to me. So he did it to please the religious Jews. So um, I use that because I think it's a very convincing argument how we can have 
we can have um, thousands of years of history or hundreds of years of history and we can have clear declarations about what we expect and what we will, how we will respond when what we expect turns up and yet when it turns up, not react in the way we thought we would because what turns up doesn't fill the model that we have created. So Jesus didn't look like they thought Jesus should look, right? So my question constantly, my challenge in life is how guilty have I been of that and how much does Jesus look like I thought Jesus looked like? Now, there are some things I know he is and I was taught well and some things I love, but I've also learned some other things that I think I was, uh, I was off, off in my understanding of Jesus and the Father and, and stuff and hence the reason why that's created a, um, a bit of a crisis for all of us and... Uh, uh, but a wonderful journey, I think, of, of trying to rediscover and reestablish the, the full truth of the gospel, which we have to admit, history tells us that anything can become distorted and, and um, diminished over time. And I think what's happening in the world today is that, um, that, that, that God is redeeming the gospel, the wonderful gospel, which means good news, the good news. But that's causing a lot of, a lot of issues for us to have to face. Now, um, I think one of the other things is as well, invariably in those challenges, there are, there are casualties. Not just on a, a personal level, you know, of personnel and people, but, but there are casualties because at one's focus goes on to areas and therefore sometimes goes off other areas. So there have been casualties in this journey. For example, we have not put as much emphasis on how we used to understand praise and worship. That doesn't mean I don't believe in it. It doesn't mean I'm not a worshipper, but it means the emphasis shifted. That's become a little bit of a casualty in the same way that some other issues we talked about prayer um, last time I talked to you. And um, uh, So there are some things that I don't know if I'm right in that, you know, I really don't. I'd like to say, and rightly so, but I don't know. All I know is I don't have the capacity to, uh, to chase those things at the same time as I'm chasing this. So please forgive me if that causes you a problem. That's, that's the reason. The, the likelihood is, in the way that life works, is we will come back around the helix again. And uh, we will rediscover, which, which will be exciting in its own right, we will rediscover... Um, some of the things that have become casualties of our journey. But if you think this through, you think some of those things maybe need to become casualties of our journey because they have to come under the same uh, examination as our other belief system so that when we come back, they reflect where our journey has come. Now, um, babies like comfort. That's why dummies are... are Pacifiers, if you're American, are an amazing invention. They are just awesome, you know. Uh, our, our children and now, now our grandchild have several. You know, I was never settled for one. You know, why have one when you can have ten? Of course, some kids as well, like, um, you know, like a comforter or a blanket. And uh, we expect... We expect our children to grow beyond that, don't we? We don't expect them to, to, uh, to take their dummies to school and still have their comforter when they're sat in their GCSEs exams, <laughs> rubbing their face with a comforter. Um, 
and yet I have to say that sadly the church can be very guilty of allowing that to happen. That the things that are our comforters, that the things that, that take our attention off probably more responsible real things we can become so attached to, like the dummy and the comforter that we don't want to leave them. And I think sometimes that's why we have to become a little detached from some elements of the Christian life in order that we can recognize whether they were like a dummy or a blanket to us that make us feel good and feel safe, or whether they actually are a sincere and deep expression of our faith in God. Um, uh, one old saint who is called something which will come to me in a minute, Dark Knight of the Soul, wasn't St. John of the Cross. Uh, and there was, it was the other gal who, at the same time, she was a bit of a mystic. He wasn't Julianne of Norwich. Teresa of Avila. Look, you're learning some stuff, I'm telling you. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross were two ancient Christian mystics. And uh, John of the Cross uh, wrote a, a book. It, don't even try and read it unless you're a really intense, detailed reader because you, you just won't get past the first chapter. Read somebody who's read it and written about it for yours and my sake, who says, okay, for those people out there who can't plow through this, I'll do the hard work and I'll summarize it for you. Uh, but, but John of the Cross has got nothing to do with what I was going to preach about tonight, but it is important. Uh, John of the Cross wrote uh, a book called The Dark Knight of the Soul, where he realized there's a long, a long-standing believer in, in Christ and a lover of God uh, and one who'd taken holy orders on himself and had been committed, found himself in the dark place where it seemed his prayers were just hitting the ceiling. It seemed as though, as one, one Old Testament writer put it, the heavens were like brass. Uh, he, 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 he didn't have the familiar feelings that he used to have when he would, when he would sing or, or recite or do a liturgy. He was used to feeling God, you know, we've all been there, feeling God. He was used to that and then it stopped. And uh, he went through all the trials and challenges of, you know, first of all, what has he done wrong? And that's the first thing we can do sometimes if, if familiar old feelings have gone, what have I done wrong or what is somebody else doing wrong that's robbing me of the opportunity for that, and then of course that goes on to why doesn't God love me anymore? Um, why has God removed Himself? Then that moves on to is there a God anyway? And he called it the dark night of the soul. But uh, as he journeyed through that and walked it through, and the same with this Teresa of Avila, what he came to the conclusion was that the reality of God must must exist beyond the familiarity of an experience. So was God real? Yes, God was real because he felt him when he, when he went through the catechism. And he realized, well, if, if God is only real because I felt him when I go through the catechism, I have to question, is God real? Or am I creating a feeling because I like the words of the catechism? So when all that was taken away, he found himself in a dark place. The, 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 long story short, what happened was he emerged from that um, knowing the truth of God 
and the experience of God without it being attached to I have to do this to feel his presence or I have to do that or for example where we have to worship to bring the presence of God. He grew through all that and then out of that knowledge of God you just are and you love me and you care for me and whether I feel it or not you never change. Out of that knowing all the feelings started to come back but with greater intensity but they were never again dependent uh, upon the familiarity of an experience or, or a practice or a behavior. And, um, and uh, I, I think that's where God is, is taking us. It's certainly been part of my experience. And um, where's my faith in God? My, my faith in God is, is deeper than it's ever been. My honesty before God is probably <clears throat> much more daring than, than I ever had it. Um, and yet my feelings in respect to that, um, I preferred how it was, but then I've realized that how it was, to some degree, was keeping me from where I am, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So we, we go to the kid and we say, right, this is the day you throw your dummy in the bin, okay? This is the day we burn the, the comforter. Or as my mother cruelly did, and, and I, I don't know if I've ever forgiven her, and I might have to account to God for this, made me burn my favorite teddy as a Guy Fawkes on bonfire night. Can you believe it? Now what? You see why I'm damaged? Hey? But it was a process of how do I separate, how do I, not how do I separate this child from being comforted but how do I separate this child from things that bring false comfort? How, how, do I, how do I push this child beyond that to, through the loss of a favorite thing that gave comfort to the place of finding maturity? Um, which, which, of course, you know, again, we could, we could say a lot about, about that. that. So, so I think in all of this, um, we, we are on a challenge to grow up even more, okay? So we got to all that just from talking about rabble, didn't we? That wasn't bad, was it? See? Word for the day. Talk for, talk for several minutes on the word rabble. Which Rowan Atkinson would be able to say much better than me. It also means lower classes, common people. Um, basically, it's the ones who are out, the ones who haven't got it in order and whatever. I, I also found it fascinating that... Um, it comes from the French Rabelais, which is a fire shovel, a tool or mechanically operated device used for stirring or mixing a charge in a roasting furnace. Almost like um, there is a connection in, in the human mind between rabble and, and hell. <laughs> you know, that, that rabble and hell are so closely related that they're almost one and the same, and, you know, rabble will produce hell and rabble will finish up in hell. So, so. We can either perceive ourselves like that because um, without overstating it, if we pull that thing back, um, humanity is pretty broken still. Uh, I thank God for all the technologi technological developments that we've had and societal developments, but you know, we still, underneath all that, still lurks animal. You know, as the old 79-year-old guy gets in a minor accident in a village, with some guy who jumps out and, and stabs him multiple times 
in the neck and the face and the back and kills the guy. So, you know, there's, there's still that brokenness in, in, in society. You know, the four guys that were banned for five years from attending football matches for pushing the black guy off the, off the tube train in Paris. Um, if, if you ever were around um, in, in the, in, for the race riots in the 80s and 90s in the US, um, well, in fact, you go back to the, um, the Toxteth, Toxteth and what was the one in London? Brixton. Um, and you see... Um, lawyers right, and uh, city traders looting supermarkets and television shops. Why? Because underneath it, actually, we, we are pretty broken and um, it, it, it's, it's a miracle that things are not worse than they are, to be honest, when we say, you know, oh, things, are, things are actually could be a lot worse. So... So I'm simply saying that, 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 that we can view, therefore, humanity as we're just rabble. We have no purpose in our existence. We live a few short years. You know, it's dog eat dog, do unto others before they do it unto you. And, uh, and that is that. Or we can view ourselves alternatively as, as rubble. And I will explain that now from, from some Bible verses. In, in the Old Testament, there is a... Um, there is a historic book called the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a guy who was around in, in Israel during one of their times where they were um, captive to a foreign nation. And uh, so they were, you know, just like under the Romans, they were, they were under a foreign occupation. And uh, this army that came in had destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city, and, uh, and burned down the gates so Jerusalem was, you know, pretty much the, um, the habitat of, of anybody who was on the run from the invading armies and, uh, you know, dogs and a few sheep. It was not habited, hab, inhabited as a, a city any longer. But uh, this guy, Nehemiah, when he heard about the state of Jerusalem, he was a, a Jew, went to the ruling authorities and said, can I go back? Will you allow me, for our history's sake, for our people's sake, for our God's sake, to, uh, to rebuild the city that you broke down? Amazingly, he was given permission to do so. So, um, uh, this kind of picks up this story. So, in Nehemiah chapter 1 and, and verse 3, I'm just going to pick... Um, Four verses out of three chapters. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 3 it says, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So that, that's the backdrop to this, this story that, that I, I want to share with you. I'm going to then jump forward to Nehemiah chapter 4. And... Um, Nehemiah has now been given finances and personnel to, to set about rebuilding Jerusalem. Now, the people who are working with him are the inhabitants, or would be the inhabitants, those who've got a, an, interest in, an interest in fixing this thing, putting this thing back together. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, So we built the wall 
And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for all the people had a mind to work. So they've gone right round the city, the boundary of the city, and now the wall, by measurement, is half as high as it used to be before the wall was ever broken down. Okay? And then it says in verse 10 of that same chapter, chapter 4, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So somewhere in this process of rebuilding, of um, trying to fix the brokenness, trying to make a difference, trying to restore uh, what had importance and significance, the, the people involved in that began to lose heart, okay? Began to lose their strength. And um, this is always the danger in any project that takes time to accomplish. So in any process of change, of, of, of it might be on a personal level, fixing our own life, fixing the brokenness in our own life. I fully accept that, that um, the instantaneous miraculous is possible and I have experienced it and I have, I have witnessed it where, you know, there is an instant healing of the mind, the spirit, the body, the heart, an instant grasping of a belonging and a coming home. Um, but I'm also wise enough to know that, that it becomes in many people a journey to wholeness and a journey to health. And, and um, you know, our world has not been fixed by a you know, click of the fingers. It, it, it's a journey fixing our world. It's a journey fixing our society. It's a journey reaching people. It, it's a journey just staying in touch with the cultural changes that affect us all. That, you know, what, what might have been a solution 50 years ago is not a solution now because it just doesn't work. Culture changes. So even by that very definition, um, how the gospel touches the lives of people in society is going to differ from age to age and generation to, to generation. So the problem is, and, and again, this is where I'm talking a little bit about what God is doing with us. It's so easy to become disheartened when you are partway into the journey because things are not what they were and they're not what they are going to be. So we remember the wall, but now the wall's broken. Uh, we want the wall to re be rebuilt, but now we're only halfway there. So we have a half a wall that is, is in Yorkshire, neither Nout nor Summit. And what I mean by that is it isn't going to keep any enemies out, and it's not going to keep any people in. It's Nout nor Summit. It, it, you know, and um, um, sometimes I, I am very aware that that's where we are, particularly as a group of people. You know, sometimes I think, well, you know, it sometimes feels like Nout the Summit, but it is something, but it's just that the wall that's being built has only reached half its height. Now, if we take wisdom from this ancient book, now I'm, I'm not being hyper-spiritual here, because, you know, sometimes we use terminologies about the wisdom of God, and some of you might feel excluded by that, but this, from this ancient book, which I believe is the heart of God reflected to humanity, there is a wisdom that says for all of us, when we are building something, when we get halfway, is the time that we're most likely to begin to lose heart and, uh, 
and lose strength because they've worked great, but, but it says that the strength of the laborers is failing. Or in other words, you start feeling, I just haven't got the strength to go on. I just can't, you know. This is just taking too much energy. I haven't the strength to go on. So what can happen is that we can quit with half a wall built. And we can go back to some other existence and live out our days and spend our time and, you know, probably probably okay, but, but never actually having persisted to build what it was that we had the wonderful privilege to restore. Because this whole story is a story of restoration. It's, it's a story of, of, of an inheritance lost an inheritance restored. The whole, the whole Bible narrative is a story about inheritance lost and inheritance restored. It's the story of humanity. Inheritance lost, inheritance restored. And, and so this, in this picture, what he's saying is in that process, um, far too many of us in the process of the building of our lives, the building of a family, the building of a church, that we're likely to quit when we've built half of it. That's a waste of energy, to be honest. Why stop now is my point. We came this far. Why stop now? Um, If you read the whole story, you'll read that um, Nehemiah was ridiculed. Uh, First of all, for what he was doing. Said, you're an idiot. You're stupid. Why are you doing that? Just, Just forget it. Settle into where you have found yourself, which was, you know, submission to the, to the empirical ruling occupying forces. Just give it up. Just go with the flow. You know, don't change how you do church. Just go. Why, why, why resist what everybody else is doing? Why, why not just stay with what everybody else is staying with, which is really the story. Why, why do this? You, what is wrong with you, Nehemiah? You are stupid because, you know, you still might incur the wrath of everybody around you because those who've sent you might say, well, we don't like what you're doing. This poses a threat to us. So, so he endured ridicule. The other thing that, that people also said was that what he was building would never stand. They said, oh, you know, if a jackal climbs on, on this, it'll fall over. You read the story. If a jackal or a wild animal climbs on what you've built, it'll fall over because it has no substance. So Nehemiah had to resist um, these pressures of life that were telling him he's stupid to press through with this and that what he'd already done wasn't worth a spit, basically. So we're at half a wall, we've got no strength, there's all this stuff going on. It would be a time that a lot of people would just quit and, and give up. Um, but there's an interesting thought here, so easily missed, okay? We built the wall, the entire wall joined together up to half its height. But then the strength of the laborers was failing because they said there's so much rubbish that we can't build the wall. Okay. Question. The half of wall that they'd be built had been built from what? They certainly hadn't gone out to quarry some stone. Oh, we'll go find some new stones to build this wall and we'll bring them in. Oh, now we've run out. No. 
that the, the half wall that had been built had been built from the rubble of the wall that once was there, the life that once existed, the purpose that once stood, the, the, the confidence that once held its own. They were building with the rubble of all those broken dreams. They were building with the rubble of what had been failure. They, they were dealing with the rubble of what represented their being overrun by something else, their dreams being shattered, their families being broken. So, so they were building the wall they built with the rubble, okay? And uh, so if you think about it, mathematically speaking, if, if they built the wall to half its height, from the rubble that used to be the whole wall, how much rubble do we now have left now that the wall is built to half its height? The truth is we have half as much rubble as we had when we started. But you notice that what happens when people get weary and our strength is failing, we become rubbish conscious. So half as much rubbish, half as much debris from brokenness will affect us twice as much as all the debris did in the first place. So, so our concern is disproportionate to the truth. Okay? Our fears are disproportionate to the truth. I have to say that in life, mostly our fears are disproportionate to the truth. But it's because we get worn down and we get weary and you know, that's why Jesus kept saying, fear not. If, you, if your faith's in the right place, right? If your faith's in the right place, your fears will not be disproportionate to the truth that you know. So the truth was, we have only half as much rubbish as we had before. We have only half as much rubble, and we've actually built half a wall, but we've built it from the rubble. We have taken the broken pieces, the burnt pieces, and they used to burn the stones. They would burn the city. The stones would be black. That was the nature of things. The way you destroyed the city was you not only raised it to the ground, but you burnt it. So you blackened the stones. So it left in everybody's memory kind of a, 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 that you were more than conquerors. Now do you understand why Paul uses the term in the book of Romans, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us? Because more than conquerors was you overran the city, basically you murdered as many people as you could lay your hands on, you, you broke down the walls and then you burnt them so the stones were black. Well, well, God in Christ has done the opposite. He saved as many people as he can get his hands on. And uh, he has restoring dreams and, and, and restoring people and restoring, restoring lives. So, so remember this tonight, that our fears are disproportionate to the problem that we're actually looking at. So I have to speak as a leader, as a pastor, in the context of how we are moving forward, reaching one another, building one another, helping one another. And to say that if the wall is half up, we only have half as much rubble as we used to have, and that rather than seeing the rubble that is around us as an obstacle to our building, it's the material with which we build. I have learned my doubts are the material with which I build my faith. 
My questions, which are very deep and frightening to some people, are the material with which I build my faith. They are not destructive to my faith unless I leave them as a pile of rubble on a half-baked, half-built belief system and leave them as a pile of rubble. But when I take that rubble, those doubts, those broken things, and I take them, then they become the material to build the wall. The greatest... The greatest stimulator to faith is doubt. Because unless you have doubt, you don't know whether you have faith. And so you can't believe for what you don't know you're supposed to believe for, and you don't know you're supposed to believe for it unless there's a challenge. So the questions, the doubts, those issues are actually the material, the rubble with which we take to rebuild the wall. Hence again, why we're not afraid of questions on anything, hell, whatever, we're not afraid because those are the very materials that build our faith, not destroy our faith. So have we set the picture here? So, so half the wall's built, strength is gone, that's the time when we get weary. Uh, it's the time when we begin to not only question whether we want to continue, but, but, but as happened here, we begin to question the wisdom of those who led us to build the wall that's now only half finished. So, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. You would be no different to Nehemiah's people if you question me over a, or, or Chris or whatever over a half-built wall. You'd be no different, so don't feel, don't feel too bad about it. But I want you to understand why we do that. It's because we have only got a half-wall and we do become weary and we become rubble-conscious, rubble-conscious. If only we didn't have all this rubble, but if you didn't have all that rubble, you've got now to build with right? So when we look around and see, but look, all the rubble that's been caused by this, we should rejoice and say, so thank God we have everything we need to finish the wall, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. So actually they did pretty well in all honesty because they, 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 uh, they got this thing up in 52 days, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, less than two months. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind some of those working here. It's pretty good going. Um, there's a couple of things to that. Number one, what it shows is that they pressed through their doubts. Because otherwise the war wouldn't have been finished, would it? They pressed through their doubts. They held faith with Nehemiah. They counteracted their weariness with hope. They refused to settle back into um, a sense of familiarity for the past. Uh, the word I was looking for was nostalgia. They refused to settle back into a nostalgic sense of familiarity and said, no, we must press on because we're building a wall here and when this wall is finished and the city is finished, it will be a place that makes a declaration of the goodness, the greatness, the power of God. It will become a refuge for people. It will become a home again, which is the most wonderful thing, isn't it? Cities, cities grow up to provide a home. That's what cities are. Cities are a series of homes, it's where people live and I've told you this before that, that 
Um, the issue of our hearts being at peace with God, whether you use the terminology of born from above or born again or saved or salvation, many of these terms around the church, right with God, um, really in essence what it means is you found your way home. And uh, home is very simple. Home is the place of unconditional love, acceptance and belonging. And uh, when, when you've come through the dark night of the soul, the one thing that drives your heart is an awareness of unconditional uncon- love, uh, an awareness of total acceptance and a wonderful sense of belonging. And I believe that's God's dream for all of humanity. Um, see, what God calls home is not the preserve of a limited few who grasp some theological understanding of one form of principle of a series of things that you do to find this home that, that the Bible calls salvation. Actually, uh, home is, is like Jesus' story of the two sons. You know, you've got a son who was a pain in the backside out in the field who always done what was right, he believed, always never left his, his father's side, you know, was, you know, basically as you're in church every, every weekend, you know, uh, doesn't swear, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't, you know, chase women or whatever, I don't know what your models of that are. Um, and yet he's miserable and mean and doesn't want the inheritance to be shared with anybody else and is not extravagant in his desire to bless. And I think what a lesson that is that Jesus taught us of, of how we become if we get too stuck in, in the outward things that seem to measure our rightness or our wrongness. It, it doesn't actually do us any good. That boy was that person and it made him mean. It made him not want his brother to be blessed. Don't bring that lazy so-and-so home what has he ever done you know and I've, I've served you all these years and you know and then he's whinging I've never been given this and appointed that and sorted so you know the lesson of that is is that um, faith in anything faith in a no god or faith in a god can make us flipping miserable so-and-sos and very combative and I, I don't like fundamentalist Christians or fundamentalist atheists or fundamentalist anything. And every sphere has them because they're like that older brother. You know, I've kept all the rules, I've done this or I've done that, or I, you know, the rules of science, the rules of Christianity, the rules of, of Islam, the rules of whatever. And there's a wonderful picture there that says the kind of person that turns us into is not the kind of person we need to be or that God dreams that we would be for our benefit. So... Sometimes, no, not sometimes. I hope at times you fail miserably. So it breaks you out of the older brother syndrome. Nothing quite like a failure. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, forgive me, Father Fry of Sin, I parked in a disabled parking space at Asda last week, but it was only for one minute. You know, I don't mean that kind of failure. Now, if you run a disabled person over to park there, maybe that's a different matter, you know, but... I'm in a kind of fa- failure where if you've always had it together language-wise and then you come out with a tirade of cuss words 
Um, I used to be about that. I'd be, because I was the older brother, I'd be like, uh, now I think I'll do you the world of good. Not that I'm telling you to do that, so don't say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll go out and have a... Because here's what, here's what um, Julianne of Norwich said. And she was not a person who had a quiz show on TV. Sounds like that, doesn't it? Here's your host, Julianne of Norwich. Julianne of Norwich, again, was a, an ancient saint, believer, writer. And she said this. She said, first the fall, and then recovery from the fall. Both are the grace of God. Just let that sink in. First the fall... Then the recovery from the fall, both are the grace of God. Because the greatest power of recovery can only occur in the grace of understanding the extent of the fall. First the fall, then the recovery from the fall, both are the grace of God. And I never used to see the grace of God in failure. Now, my heart is always open. I'm looking for people who messed up and uh, looking to encourage them because, because that's part of the grace of God that says, hey... I know what this is about, and uh, we know a solution to this as well. It's called the grace of God in Jesus that, that you are now in a good position to experience. So, so, um, so 50 odd days, that w- what I was saying was that they, they stayed with it. They, in spite of all that was happening, they, they hung fast to the task. They didn't let nostalgia grip hold of them. They, they didn't let the weariness of the trudge of putting stone after stone in the wall prevent them from finishing it. So less than two months, and we have we have completed we've completed the wall. The little lesson in that is this: that if if when the wall was half built, they that was the point at which they began to lose strength and lose heart. And it took us 52 days to build the whole wall. Half of 52 days is less than that. 26 days. Now that's quite staggering, but I think it says something about the human nature. That for all of us, unless we... Re-envision, repurpose, uh, recommit, re-establish, reinstate, and all the other re's that you can think of. On a consistent basis, we, we slip and we shrink to become older brother. We slip and we shrink to become the give-ups and the can't finish and the, the wounded and the dropouts. So we never finish the purpose that that was a good purpose that, that God laid at our door. So coming back to my other story, of, there was another boy in the story, popularly known as the prodigal, which is the wrong name for the story, and that's, that's another issue itself, because actually it's looking at these two sons and saying, we're probably one of those two. You know, somewhere towards the, the, I kept the rules. And again, you know, I, I always say when I preach this, I could be preaching 
any religious doctrine or non-religious in the world because these kind of people are in everything. I kept the rules of atheism. I kept the rules of Christianity. I kept the rules of Islam. I kept the rules of Hinduism. Those kind of people that you've all met, and like I say, I, I was one of them for many years and hope, hope that I've, I've made a shift. And then on the other hand, you've got the other boy who just... He just throws it all to the wind. He, he wants to do his thing. He doesn't really know that. He's not sure what he wants, but he knows he doesn't want this, right? Okay, and I've been there as well. I've been there as a, as a pastor, right? Sometimes thinking, I don't know what I want, but sometimes I think I don't want this. And we've all been there in our faith. We've been there in relationships. We've been there in the, the trials that come when we're trying to rebuild something that's, that's broken down because, because it's hard. But So this boy, he, you know, many of you will be familiar with the story. He, he takes half the inheritance and he goes and does his thing. And uh, he finishes up in what for a Jewish boy was... The, the picture is it was the worst possible place a Jewish boy could ever be because pigs to the Jews were unclean and he finished up eating the food that the pigs eat, basically living with the pigs. It, it's just a picture that, trying to say, look, he couldn't go any lower in cultural terms in Jesus' talk to them. Culturally, he couldn't go any lower than that, culturally and personally. The story is you can't get low enough to evade the love of the Father. You can't let your faith go far enough. You, you can't fail big enough. You can't commit something bad enough to ever get beyond the reach of the Father's love and the welcome home. What I love is that, is that the Father in Jesus' picture, which is trying to, he's trying to make a, a point about the wonder of home and, of course, home being attached to the Father's love and says every day the Father was out there looking for his boy. Um, so this whole idea that we, we could get written off, we're too bad we got written off, is a nonsense. I mean, it, it's a no he didn't get written off. The wonderful thing is the boy who's the pain in the backside as well, the religious nutter, uh, he didn't get written off either. In fact, what the father desired was that all of them would come in the house. The problem is neither of them were in the house, right? So it's all right, this, this, you know, I've done it all right and I've kept the rules and everything. He wasn't in the home, he was in the field. I've worked for you all the time. He's, he's as far out of the father's home experience as his younger brother, but doesn't realize it. And we can be full of stuff that make us keep the rules and everything else and be as far from, from home with the father as, as the boy who's gone out and done all that stuff. That's why I don't judge or you will be judged, Jesus said. And with the measure that you judge, you also will be judged. Leave it alone. Deal with your own stuff. If you felt more, spent more time looking at the person in the mirror than the person on the other side of the window, there'd be a lot more change happens in our lives, right? Spend more time looking in the mirror than looking out the window, but we spend more time looking out the window than we do looking in the mirror. And see who's looking back at us and, and, and see that honestly. So. So my point here is that, that the whole point was home. He wanted the boy home. Why? What was home? It was unconditional love. It was total acceptance. 
and it was a wonderful sense of belonging. That's where all this brings us to, and that's why Nehemiah was building this. Cities are for homes, homes are for people, and cities feed and help and, and serve and protect and keep, and he's wanting to rebuild this, and, and that, I believe, is what the kingdom of God is all about. So, the point, 26 days. Um, we tend to become rubble conscious. Now, I think you know I'm right. Any, anybody who's honest in here knows not only that I'm right, but that you know this, this wonderful ancient story in the Bible is right. That, that Isn't it funny because we just start to become rubble conscious? And uh, it drains our strength and it saps our faith and, and we can start to lose lose tremendous hope. But hope is restored not when we fail to see the rubble. Hope is restored when we see the rubble's only half as big as it used to be. Hope is restored when we say, do you know what? All this stuff that's happened, the mistakes I've made, the the things that have happened to me, the things that I missed, that I loved, and all these things, when we begin to see them, that these are the materials now that we are going to finish this thing. And we're going to build this wall, which of course is just a picture of you know, building our lives, our lives being restored back to what they ought to be. That the kingdom of God in the world being restored to what it ought to be. Humanity feeling the impact of the presence of the finished work. See how it all ties together. We talked about that on Saturday. When the wall's done, everybody feels the impact of the finished work, right? We didn't think anybody would ever start this and we never thought they would finish. That's what that was the mind of people. But now we see the finished work. And the whole issue, of course, which we related, you know, Jesus starts promising the Lord's favour in his very first conversation publicly with people and he ends up on the cross saying it is finished or in other words the wall it was tough in the middle but we didn't lose heart and now it's finished and because it's finished now when we look at the finished work of Christ we see the the kingdom built for us we see we see home made ready for our habitation we see an invitation that says i did this for you because what nehemiah wasn't doing is trying to build a monument okay let's build a monument let's let's restore the monument of jerusalem the monument of what the jews knew as zion so that we have a museum to say how amazing we are he never built it to be a monument he built it to be uh, uh, a, an expression of a work that was now finished so that all could come home. That all were welcomed, that all could flock through the gates and throw open the gates and say, come into this finished work. What God did in Jesus was throw open the gates to all humanity to say, hey, listen, that thing you thought couldn't be built has been built, it's finished. Didn't lose heart. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What's all that about? It's about, the, it's about even Jesus losing strength and his hope coming into question. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but I'm going to finish the wall, the finished work. And so the question we asked at the beginning, what is God doing with us? He's wanting us to finish something 
that we started that meant, first of all, that some walls had to be broken down and we were left with a pile of rubble that if any of you were with us 12 years ago, um, I wasn't in a great state, Chris wasn't in a great state, we weren't in a great state. Uh, walls were broken down, but, but with the pile of rubble that we had left, we've been building, 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 because we found the grace of God on our lives. And um, experienced the same ridicules that Nehemiah's experienced. And the same snide comments that says, you know, What you guys are doing is because you see the other problem that comes with you know when when dear old Julian of Norwich said first the fall and then recovery from the fall both of the grace of God the problem is when you've been through that um, you you stand with the fallen on their journey to wholeness which means um, there is a tolerance and an acceptance and a a home creators for people who, on the journey, are not where they might be in some time. And those all can draw the comments and the remarks that, well, for, you know, Nehemiah, this is not, you're not, you know, this is not being built how, how it should be built, biblically or whatever. Well, Nehemiah just got on and built it and said, well, let, let what we build stand or fall as a testimony. And the truth is, what happened is, it made it into this um, world's bestseller called the Bible. Has uh, been speaking to the lives of people for almost 3,000 years. Because when Nehemiah saw that, and when he understood, and when his heart was broken because of it, and when he set to it and, and entered and did that finished work, it made home for people to come back. We're trying to build something to where we can say it is finished. Look what God has done. Throw open the doors so people can come in. Isn't it sad that um, that that on one hand, Jesus was applauded. Oh, he heals the sick. He, you know, he, he does miracles. But on the other hand, they say, well, we don't know what's wrong with him because every time he goes to eat, he's with prostitutes and people are doing stuff that we, we deem wrong from the law and, and is with tax collectors are working for the Romans and he has all his meals with those people what the heck is wrong with him well it's not what was wrong with him it's what was right with him because he really understood the grace that has come to us to finish the work and press through to do what God had called him to do now I had some other stuff that I could say to you but but we're not going to say it because I think we've um, we've kind of said enough so um Don't be rubble conscious. But you still have to look at the rubble, okay? Because you can't build the wall with the rubble unless you're fully prepared 
to eyeball the rubble, to face up what are the issues of destruction, the things that bother you, the things that are the problem, the things that are difficult. We don't walk away from them. You have to look them square in the face, if you can do that with a piece of rubble, and make it the next piece of the wall. You're willing to handle it, you're willing to take all of it, because you have a purpose for that rubble. This rubble is not going to intimidate me and destroy me. This thing that's been broken in my life, this thing that I don't understand, this thing that's troubling me, I'm not going to let it destroy me, but I'm going to take that now, and by the grace of God, I'm going to place it in the wall of what is my life that God has been building, because it's now going to form a part of the story of my life. It's not going to be the thing that stops the story. It's going to become part of the story that makes it bigger and better and greater. So I want to say to all of you, whatever the rubble is in your life, it is your friend, it is your material. And if you will take it by the grace of God and have purpose and say, God has empowered me to finish this work that is my life, that is work in my life, that is his work in this house, then you will finish the wall just like Nehemiah. And then we throw open the gates and say, look what God has done. Yes? All right, well, I pray the favor of God on you. I told you on Saturday that... Um, when he says in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus came, when he preached, he quoted Isaiah 61 and said that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that, um, that, that two of the ways of saying that from the Greek are to, to announce, right? Announce favor is here. The other one, which I absolutely love, was to invite favor. Jesus came to invite the favor of God. And in doing that, because he did it by the power of the Spirit, he has empowered us and equipped us to invite the favor of God. I have tried to be um, a good listener to my own words on Saturday night. And um, every morning that I've woken this week, I, the first thing that I have done as my eyes have opened is I invite the favor of God into this day. I invite it because I've been promised it. Because Jesus proclaimed this is the year of the Lord's favor. So I announce that favor is on this day. And I invite the favor of God to develop this day today. So that everything that happens in this day becomes part of a consequence of favor linking together that brings us not to a broken wall but to a finished wall. I believe in the finished work. I believe that, that God sent Jesus so our lives could be complete so that we could get to where we need to get. So I proclaim favor over you tonight, the favor of God. I proclaim over you today that Jesus did not declare the day of vengeance because the day of vengeance ended when the year of favor began. We are not in the day of vengeance. We are in the year of favor. Don't live in vengeance. Don't live in the brokenness. Don't live in the rubble. Live in the favor that God has proclaimed over us. And Jesus put the stamp on that in his blood of reinforcement when on the cross he said, and in case you didn't understand the extent of this, when I said it to you three and a half years ago, I am telling you now it is finished. Right? It's finished. It's built. It's here. Favor is here. So I proclaim that favor over you tonight. Receive it. Receive it in your heart. Receive it in your body, your spirit, your soul. If you've never made your peace with God in an understandable way, then make your peace with God. Come home, okay? Because everything that's necessary has been finished on your behalf. 
and he wants to be your father. So we're done. We're not going to talk anymore. We're not going to do anything else. We're just... As the saying goes, quit while you're ahead. So that's what we're going to do. All right, be blessed and we'll see you on Saturday.